0: Philippians chapter 2. Now, the Apostle Paul, writing from a prison, you remember, a prison in Rome, longs to comfort and encourage the congregation of believers here at Philippi. He wants to do this out of his own conflict and suffering. He wants these first believers in Europe to know that every child of God, in spite of the most dire of circumstances, can nevertheless in Christ find joy in the journey and God's abiding peace for each new day. At the close of chapter one, he acknowledges their partnership in the gospel. He reminds them that their commitment to Christ will most certainly bring conflict and suffering, and for that reason he wants them to know that it will be in part the quality of their relationships to one another that will sustain them in a world that was and still is, my friends, no friend to God's grace. As we read the first 11 verses of chapter 2, you'll hear the yearnings of Paul's heart for them. It's palpable. He even mentions his own need for encouragement from them. So let's read the text together beginning at verse 1, chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, If there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let us pray. Father, we want to represent you well in this world. That is, in fact, your calling upon our lives, to be Christ-like in all of our ways, so that his ways may be seen in us, so that you will be honored Thank you, then, for giving us such clear instructions in your word regarding the importance of our relationships, not only to you, but to one another as well. We ask for the help of your Holy Spirit in illuminating this text to our understanding, even as we seek your enabling power to put its principles to work. We ask for the greater glory of Christ, and in his name we pray. Amen. Now, here in chapter 2 and verse 1, the apostle employs a rather curious linguistic method of capturing their attention and ours to what should be absolutely obvious truth. Uh, In our contemporary vernacular, it's a little like someone living in Florida all summer and saying this to a neighbor, boy, is it hot and humid. To which the perspiring friend responds, you think? A polite way of not saying, duh, yeah, it's really hot. This verse states what is already supposed to be obvious of every Christian community. He employs the if clauses in this way. He says, if there is any encouragement in christ and i can hear a contemporary saying you think of course there's encouragement in christ and then he says uh, if there is any comfort or consolation uh, if there is any of that to be found in another loving believer and the response is almost duh yeah it's supposed to be there you get the idea But actually, in the context of conflict and suffering, and that is uh, the context, look at the immediate uh, preceding two verses there at the end of chapter 1. He says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Therefore, Is there any encouragement in Christ? You think? Well, then, do these things. The verse stating what should be obvious becoming all the more important. Obvious truths are all the more important when the heat is on, when there's conflict, when there's a need that arises. What I find in the immediate verses here are what I'd like to call tall orders for lowly Christians call orders for us lowly Christians. Paul is saying, if ever there was a time for encouraging one another, comforting one another, leaning on one another, which is what he means by the fellowship of the Spirit, koinonia, if there ever was a time, he says, to express your affection and your compassion for one another, it is now. It is, in fact, whenever believers begin to get serious about the claims of Christ upon their lives in a world that is by nature hostile to the truth of God, this is the time to put these obvious things into effect toward one another. Now, my friends, that was the case in first century Philippi, and it is the case in our day, believe it or not. In fact, may I say that if any one of us is not experiencing, at least at some point, any kind of conflict with the world. If there is not a hint of any kind of objection you face, or even a turning away from you because of the truth, then I would have to say that should be cause for evaluating whether or not we as a people are really living for his honor, Or are we living uh, under the intimidation and fear of man? The Bible says it's the fear of God that brings real wisdom, but it also tells us that to fear man more than God is to bring us into a very cruel kind of bondage. In verse 2, Paul welcomes some of that needful encouragement coming from them while he waits for whatever his fate may be in prison. I pointed this out in earlier messages. Paul cannot know for certain that this particular imprisonment in Rome may end at the executioner's block. He hopes to be delivered. He hopes to see these very believers again, but he can't be certain of it. And so he needs encouragement in his tight situation. And what do you see in verse 2? make my joy complete. What is it that will encourage the heart of the pastor, Paul? He says, by being of the same mind, maintaining together your love, the same love for one another, to see you united in spirit, And intent, he says, on one purpose. Whenever you see one purpose in Scripture, it always comes back to this matter of God in all things being honored and glorified. He wants that to be their experience. And he says, if I hear about that, even as I lay my head on the chopping block, I'll have reason to experience joy. The apostle, I think, in this verse is describing the very infrastructure of what we call Christian unity in the church. Commentator William Barclay translates these first two verses of chapter 2 this way. It's a slightly different and expanded way of appreciating what's being said. Let me read his uh, rendering of this. If the fact that you are in Christ has any power to influence you, if love has any persuasive power to move you, if you really are sharing in the Holy Spirit, if you can feel compassion and pity, complete my joy. For my desire is that you should be, as a congregation, in full agreement, loving the same things, joined together in soul, Your minds set on one thing. I was thinking, what an exquisite mission statement for any true church of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? But these are tall orders indeed. So it's right to ask of the apostle, sounds good. How do we get there? How do we experience this kind of unity, which will only serve to keep us in the time of trouble? Well, verses 3 and 4, I want you to look there now. These verses begin a confrontation with the source of all disunity. If Christians will begin to acknowledge what it is about them individually that tends toward division, that brings discouragement instead of encouragement, if we'll think about what robs us of comfort, or stifles affection, or replaces compassion with pointing fingers, we will discover, as he does, that it is the perennial weed of selfishness which is our sinful and continual bent toward what I would call in our day (laughs) self-absorption. Or we would say in the vernacular, people all wrapped up in themselves, self-absorption. And I must say, unfortunately, this as a characteristic of our age is particularly epidemic in this culture. It's the all-about-me mentality. It doesn't take a congregation of 100 people for things to get messy. In fact, may I suggest that if you put just 10 professing Christians in a room where each one secretly thinks that they are the most important person in the room... You will most certainly have a chaos of competing interests and desires, but you will certainly not have unity. I grew up in the Baptist tradition. And uh, we Baptists used to have a saying. That is that you could put any two Baptists together in a room and you'll come out with at least three opinions. (laughs) All of them quite different. So I want you to examine a little closer the words here in verse 3. Most of us know what basic selfishness looks like, but Paul actually defines the foolish nature of selfishness. He calls it empty conceit. The King James Version hits it on the head, translates it as one word, vain glory. Taking Glory for oneself. Did you know that that's the Bible's definition of selfishness? Taking glory. And no wonder he calls it vain or empty conceit or vain glory. Paul's arguing that we ought to do battle with this perennial bent we have in our sinfulness of selfishness because it's a foolish thing. It's a stupid thing to live a selfish life, and he's going to take this apart for us. It is taking glory for oneself. And this is a particularly alarming thing if it's discovered in a professing Christian, wouldn't you think? Why? Because the Bible clearly tells us that glory belongs to God alone. Uh, The Greek word here uh, that he employs, that the King James, I said, translates as vain glory, or my translation renders empty conceit, is a two-part Greek word. The Greek word is kino doxia. Kino means literally empty, vain. But it's this word doxia, which hits at our hearts rather convictingly. Uh, It is the word for glory, or giving praise. You know, in these days of political campaigning, uh, I have sometimes been heard to say that such and such a person, in my opinion, is, quote, an empty shirt. Uh, You know, they make a good presentation, and they speak a lot of words, and some people are enamored. Sometimes I'm of the opinion that we're listening to just another empty shirt. The word kino here would imply that uh, there's, a, there's a whited sepulcher there, but there's not much inside but dead man's bones and self-interest. That's the word kino. But this doxia, you know the word. If you've been around church uh, uh, any time in your life for any length of time, you know we sometimes sing the doxology, the doxa, the doxology. What are those words? Well, it's praise God. From whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? Praise to God. Kinodoxia is an empty praise because it is rendered to oneself. That's the definition, the Bible's way of describing, frankly, the great sin of being selfish. So the Apostle here is saying, that the antidote, which we ought to be interested in since we all suffer from day to day and from time to time, sometimes we have real bouts of selfishness. He gives us an antidote to this problem uh, that we have with selfishness or self-centeredness. It is to recognize that all such self-importance is actually an empty, kino, and vain thing because even, if we will confess this, that the very best of ourselves is something that God has accomplished in and through us by Christ. You remember the problem that Paul addressed among the worldly uh, church at Corinth, the Corinthian church. Uh, They were praising, if you remember, the gifts of different preachers, you know, it sort of would be today, well, I like Charles Stanley, I had someone say that to me recently, uh, someone that sits under my preaching, and they let me know they like Charles Stanley, I don't know what they think of me, uh, and then and then I'll run into someone else, and they'll say, oh, there's just no one better to listen to than David Jeremiah, And and sometimes I've heard Uh, Christians go back and forth and compete a little bit over this thing. It was going on in the first century in Corinth. Remember, there was the group that said, oh boy, can Apollos preach. I'm going to his church. And then there's Paul, and some said they were of his party. Then then there were those who kind of liked Peter, you know, the blue-collar fishermen. They could relate well to his preaching. Then there was the super spiritual bunch at Corinth, and they said, I like Jesus. And so they were only concerned to hear what Jesus had to say. Paul addresses that problem uh, in their hearts as a kind of selfishness, and he says this Who is Paul? Or who is Apollos? Or who is Peter? It's interesting to note he doesn't dare say who is Jesus. But at least he looks at the human, less divine servants of God and says, Who are we? And then he answers. He says, We are merely bondservants of Jesus Christ. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 is meant to strike a fatal blow to all such expressions of selfish pride. It says, quote, That you may learn not to become arrogant, one against the other, for who regards you or anyone else as superior? Now, I want you to listen to the divine logic here. Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? In other words, all of our functioning in the body of Christ, whether it be our special gifts and whether they be one or many, great or small, all the glory belongs to the giver alone. And self-glory is vain or empty glory. And in fact, puts one in jeopardy, we've learned now. We are to replace this epidemic self-absorption for a kind of self forgetfulness as we render ourselves merely bond servants, lowly bond servants of Jesus Christ. Now, I could wish that the only problem that we had with selfishness today was related to the use of our service and gifts, but the fact is, uh, there's a more pernicious form, I think, of self uh, absorption in our day. And it's when people over time sort of develop the attitude that everything in their realm of experience should somehow converge to serve their interests and needs. They wake up in the morning and everything that confronts them and everything that happens is evaluated only in the light of how it makes me, for the most part, feel, self-interest, self-absorption. This kind of self-importance is a poison to your Christian life, and too much of it in the body of Christ cripples its effectiveness as a church of Jesus Christ before a watching world. So these are serious issues that Paul is dealing with Could Paul say it any more clearly than the words found in the second part here of verse 3? I want you to look there, and all of verse 4, in fact. It speaks for itself, even if it is the rarest jewels in our day. (laughs) Look what he says. Look how tall the order. With humility of mind, regard one another... Are you ready? ...regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Is this descriptive of your day-to-day experience? This is the goal. You know, in our day, too often we encounter the self-absorbed, even in the church of Jesus Christ, you can discover it. Uh, when they aren't getting what they feel they need, it becomes clear. We, we sometimes say of such overt cases that so and so apparently has issues. Have you ever heard that? So and so apparently has issues. Paul seems to be saying this Well, we all have our issues. Deal with it and begin to serve the issues or the interests of others. And you will find, he is saying, a far better Christ-honoring way to experience the personal satisfaction you're really looking for and the only way to promote the kind of unity necessary when the heat is on. If you want to be appreciated by others, in other words, and we all want to be appreciated by others... But there's a qualification here. If you live with a need to be noticed and recognized and appreciated by others, guess what works? The only thing that works is to serve others. Do something to be appreciated for. And that's the part that we sometimes fail to get around to. As always, the Bible never asks more of us. Than Christ himself endured for our sakes. If your goal and mine, and it was for Paul, to be more like Christ, then every remnant of this pernicious selfishness must be evicted from the heart and mind. The very epitome and the apex example of unselfishness he gives us is the crucified creator and the savior of sinners such as ourselves. I'm going to read slowly again. You listen attentively and reverently as though you're standing upon for a moment the blood-stained soil of Golgotha. Listen to these words. Have this attitude, in verse 5, in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. What service did he render? Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And not just any kind of death, Paul says, even death on a cross. You know, on a number of occasions during my sojourn in that great country, Germany, and walking through the many awesome cathedrals, I have to tell you there were times when I literally stood in awe not just of the architecture, but in particular of the many graphic depictions of Christ on the cross. Now, we Protestants have our reasons for employing an empty cross and not the many crucifixes. But I must tell you, perhaps we lose a little something If we soon to forget, too soon forget, what it was for Christ to bear the shame of literal nudity, nakedness, hurling abuse, the stripes that he bore, the beard that was plucked, the crown of thorns pressed into his brow, all of that even before being lifted up on a stake to be gawked at by the multitudes. Yet we read that he, our Lord and Savior, voluntarily laid aside the exercise of his divine right of retribution against his enemies. As we've sometimes sung, he could have called 10,000 angels at that moment to destroy the world and set him free. But as that hymn says, but no, he died alone for you and for me. He emptied himself. He becomes to us the example par excellence of what Paul is saying is necessary if you and I are going to come together and be on the same page and have the same love and have the same goal and to endure the many conflicts that will come to faithful followers of Christ. Getting it together by dealing with this issue of selfishness and self-absorption christ the ultimate example this is hard work for us selfish people by nature paul gives us further encouragement and i'll close with this lest we draw back thinking that such a living sacrifice as our singers said today a living sacrifice if we think that to be too hard a thing The apostle, once again, can do no better than set forth the example of Christ. Before the face of God, understand that no sacrifice in his name, no act of unselfishness ever goes unrewarded. Look at verses 9 through 11. For this reason, because Jesus was not selfish, because Jesus emptied himself. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Nobody expressed more unselfishness and humility to the nth degree than Jesus Christ, but God never lifted up anyone any higher than Jesus Christ as a result of that self-emptying, that self-forgetfulness. Paul means to encourage us with this. We too, in the footsteps of Christ, are lifted up to him and with him when we share in his likeness. We also get to rejoice in his exaltation, which becomes our own elevation Not so long ago, we studied the epistle of James, and we read there in chapter 4, God is opposed to the proud, the self-absorbed, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Draw near to God. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. And what? And he will exalt you. He will lift you up. He did this for Christ. He will do this for each of his children. Now a Christ-like attitude is many things and we have our lifetimes to develop in us more and more of his lovely character traits. It's our full-time job, but it all begins with casting off this stupid vain glory thing. Selfishness is a great sin for God's people. Empty conceit, self-centered living, and it all begins Paul says, with fresh visions of a Savior stripped, beaten, crucified, and risen because he was looking out for our interests, our desperate need to be saved from ourselves.